In the movie Air Force One, Harrison Ford plays the role of James Marshall, the President of the United States of America. Following a rousing speech where the President vows that America will not negotiate with terrorists, the President, the First Family, some of the high-ranking officials in his cabinet and military are aboard Air Force One on a return flight to Washington, D.C., All of a sudden, the unthinkable happens. The president's Boeing 747 is hijacked. In classic Hollywood fashion, the president was once a soldier. So he courageously fights every last terrorist that had gotten on board Air Force One. By the time you get to the end of the movie, a smaller aircraft had connected a zip line to the back end of Air Force One. And all the hostages were being safely rescued one by one. Once again, it was the president who was the last to be rescued. And when he was fighting that last terrorist, uh, he latched himself onto that zip line. And as he was making his way to that additional aircraft, the zip line broke. He was flying precariously in the air. Back in Washington, D.C. at the White House in the war room, the vice president, the secretary of defense, the other additional high-ranking officials were in constant contact with that smaller aircraft. They asked the question, Liberty 2-4, do you have the president? And hearing nothing, they asked a second time, Liberty 2-4, do you have the president? From the war room, they could see on their radar that Air Force One had gone down into the Atlantic Ocean. And one last time, they urgently asked, Liberty 2-4, do you have the president? Radio contact was reestablished and the pilot said, Liberty 2-4 is now changing call signs. Liberty 2-4 is now Air Force One. Everybody in that room applauded those that were listening in the press room. They went berserk with applause because they realized that now the president was safely aboard that additional aircraft. Merely the presence of the president on board that other aircraft changed the identity of that airplane. Liberty 2-4 was now Air Force One just because the president was on board. Friend, can I tell you that when you take Jesus Christ on board your life, your call signs change. When you take Jesus aboard your life, your identity, your agenda, your perspective, your purpose, your destiny, everything about you changes merely by the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords being aboard your life. This morning, we continue our eight-part summer sermon series entitled Preaching Christ. Today, we find ourselves in the book of Acts. I want to speak to you a sermon that's entitled Converted for Christ. I want to lift up by the Spirit's power one of the most notorious conversion stories in all the Bible. 
If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 9. I'll be reading verses 1 to 19. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy Word. Acts chapter 9, allow me to begin at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said, Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. I fear that there is a tragic disconnect between the conversion story of the Apostle Paul and our conversion stories. Like you, I've heard a lot of testimonies. And far too many testimonies go something like this. I never had a Damascus Road experience. I never saw a bright light. I was never thrown down to the ground. Never heard an audible voice of God. I didn't have a sordid past. I didn't have skeletons in my closet. I always went to church, and about the age of seven, I accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Friend, whenever I hear a testimony that begins like that, I just want to stand up in the crowd and shout, Stop! You are selling yourself far short, for you are far more sinful than you realize. (laughs) You are a wretched, despicable sinner. And it required just as much of God's amazing grace to convert and to save your sorry soul as it did to convert and save the sorry soul of the Apostle Paul. So don't sell yourself short. Anytime there's a conversion, anytime there's salvation, anytime a person goes from death unto life, anytime a person goes from no faith to faith, anytime a person repents of sin and is converted unto Christ, that, my friends, is 
is a mighty, massive miracle. Regardless of age, regardless of life experience, don't ever sell the fact short that, that what happened to you is an astounding miracle of God. So friend, you may have more in common with the Apostle Paul than you ever thought imaginable. It is Luke who authors our story. Uh, Luke wrote not only the gospel that bears his name, but he also wrote the book of Acts. When you come to Acts chapter 9, Luke gives us this dramatic story in four scenes. The first scene is found in verses 1 and 2. The second scene is recorded for us in verses 3 to 9. The third scene is found in verses 10 to 16. And the fourth scene is given to us in verses 17 to 19. From those four scenes, we have four lessons about conversion. And the first lesson about conversion is this. That conversion is always initiated by God. Conversion is always initiated by God. Luke writes this story in a masterful way. I find it interesting as I read through the book of Acts, as he tells us about this man named Saul that you and I more affectionately call Paul. At the end of Acts chapter 7, we are told the story of the man named Stephen, that original servant of the church, the deacon perhaps, who was radically transformed by Christ. And it was that radical faith in Jesus Christ that led him to be one of the first martyrs of the first century. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read that this man named Saul stood at the execution of Stephen, giving his approval. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, this man named Saul begins to destroy the church. And then Luke drops Saul from the narrative. You read the rest of Acts chapter 8, and it's about a man named Philip who is told by God to go run down Gaza Road, and there you're going to find an Ethiopian eunuch, and you tell him how to be saved. And it's the dramatic conversion of that Ethiopian. And then when you get to the end of chapter 8 and lead into Acts chapter 9, then Luke picks back up this narrative of Saul and gives us the dramatic conversion of this individual but then when you come to Acts chapter 10 Luke drops Saul a second time from the narrative and in Luke chapter 10 it's the story of the apostle named Peter who's called of God to go and share Christ with a Roman centurion named Cornelius and help to lead him to Christ and then you get to Acts chapter 11 verse 25 and Luke reintroduces Saul to us again and from that point on, the majority of Acts is about the journeys and the missionary experiences of this one named Paul. As I read that, I wonder to myself, why is the story so segmented? Why is it broken up, herky-jerky, sprinkled in with other stories of other individuals? And the best conclusion I can come up with is this, that Luke wants us to know, beyond any shadow of a doubt, who the main character of the story truly is. The main character of the book of Acts is not Stephen. It's not Philip. It's not the Ethiopian eunuch. It's not Paul. It's not Ananias. The main character of the story is not the apostle Peter, nor is it the man named Cornelius. But the man on center stage in the book of Acts is the Lord Jesus himself. 
He is the star of the show. It is Jesus who is center stage. It is Jesus who's the main character of this story. It's Jesus who's the main character of this book. He's the star of the show. He's the star of the story. And friend, I want you to know that if you've been converted to Christ, your story has Jesus as its star. Jesus is the star of your story. Jesus is the star of my story. This story in the book of Acts is more about about Jesus than anybody else. My life and your life is more about Jesus than anybody else because Luke wants us to know abundantly clear that when conversion takes place, it is always and only initiated by God because Jesus is the author and the architect of our story. He is the star on center stage. As I think about that opening scene, I am also Reminded that Acts chapter 8 ends with such celebration. Acts chapter 9 begins with the doom and gloom of persecution. You get to the end of Acts chapter 8 and Philip is rejoicing. And the Ethiopian eunuch is rejoicing. He comes up out of the waters of baptism And we are told that he went on his way with his newfound faith. He goes back home to Ethiopia single-handedly. He tells that country, maybe even the whole continent, about Christ. There's a sense of rejoicing and celebration and enthusiasm. But no sooner do you turn the page away from chapter 8 into chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And I ask myself as the reader, why does Luke put side by side two very starkly different stories. One that ends with rejoicing and celebration. The other begins with such pain and agony. Why is that? Once again, I think the answer is that as the gospel is on the go, there's both joy and jealousy. That when the gospel of God is on the move, There's both hope and hindrance. There is praise and persecution. There is delight and destruction. It is true that not everybody accepts Jesus Christ. But it's also true that not everybody rejects Jesus Christ. The gospel of God has always gotten mixed reviews. And we see this in Acts chapter 8 and 9. Because on the one hand, it is Saul who is breathing out murderous threats against the church, persecuting the church. But right around the corner, there's the Ethiopian eunuch and he accepts Jesus Christ. His life is transformed. He goes home rejoicing and literally transforms his culture. Friend, sometimes we get so... uh, frustrated about the fact that some are saved and some are not and we ask ourselves God why are some saved and others are not the real thing that ought to astound us is the fact that any of us are saved the fact that any of us have accepted the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is truly a miraculous event it is astounding and if you have been converted to Christ I want you to know it wasn't your own doing if you've been converted to Christ I want you to know it's been initiated and completed by God and God alone. So when you and I go out and share the good news of the gospel, it really lightens my load because I don't save anybody. When I go, I just tell the story and I make sure that the star of the show remains the star of the show. I talk about Jesus and I lift him high and you talk about Jesus and you lift him high and when he is lifted up, he draws people unto himself because conversion is always initiated by God.
The second lesson about conversion is this. That conversion requires a willful response. Conversion is initiated by God. But secondly, it requires a willful response. I'm quite confident that the man named Saul was regarded as a hero by the high priest. Saul went to Caiaphas. He asked permission, authority, to receive papers to go down to Damascus and arrest any of those followers of the way, both men and women, to kidnap them, to throw them into jail, or maybe even persecute them even more severely. Caiaphas gave permission to Saul, and I'm sure he probably regarded the zeal of Saul and likened it to the hero Elijah. Elijah in the Old Testament single-handedly defeated 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. And I'm sure that Caiaphas saw uh, in the person named Saul an individual who was going to go out and, and stamp out the followers of the way. When Jesus was on earth, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And at this time in church history, the followers of Jesus were known as followers of the way. Followers of Jesus. I'm sure they probably regarded Saul as one who was zealous like Elijah or, or one who was zealous like Phinehas. His story is told in Numbers chapter 25 when that priest wanted to stamp out the immorality in the camp of Israel. It is Phinehas who saw an Israelite man take a Moabite woman into his tent and there begin to have sexual intercourse with her. And Phinehas took a spear and drove it through both the man and the woman and pinned them to the ground. And everybody applauded because Phinehas was stamping out any type of immorality in the camp. I promise you that Caiaphas saw what what the person named Saul was doing and said he is stamping out this religious immorality known as the followers of the way. There were people that applauded the work of the man named Saul. So he went to Damascus, 135 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. And right before he enters the city, a bright light from heaven shone knocked him to the ground. And from that light, the voice of God spoke. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? For Saul to say, Lord, is not a word of conversion. It's not a word of confession. It's just a polite way of saying, sir, who are you, sir? Identify yourself. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. When I read that sacred line of the sacred text, I got to be honest with you, I get holy goosebumps that go up and down my arms and my spine. Because Jesus says, don't mess with my peeps. Because if you mess with my people, you are messing with me. If you persecute the church, you're persecuting Jesus. Friend, you've got Jesus watching your back. You've got Jesus that's on your side. You've got Jesus that's watching out for you. He knows everything that's happening to the church. He knows everything that's going on in the church. He knows everything that's being said about the church. He knows how the church is doing. He knows where the the church is thriving. Jesus knows who you are, how you are, and where you are. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is Jesus who 
flung the stars into space. This is Jesus who scooped up the mountains and carved out the valleys. This is Jesus who turned the sun on in the sky. This is Jesus who taught the birds how to fly and the fish how to swim. This is Jesus who danced with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. This is Jesus who showed up and shut up the mouths of the lions in Daniel's den. This is Jesus who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl. This is Jesus who lived a perfect life some 33 years on planet earth. This is Jesus who was nailed to the cross for your sins and mine. This is Jesus who was placed into a borrowed tomb. This is Jesus who was raised from the dead on the third day. This is Jesus who's ascended into the heavens and seated at the right hand of the Father. This is Jesus who one day will peel back the clouds and crack the eastern sky and return and rescue his church. I wish somebody will get happy in the house because this is Jesus. He's the one who defends us. He's the one who protects us. He's the one that comes after us. He is the hound of heaven. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is king of all kings. He is Lord of all lords. What he's saying to Saul is you ain't no match for me. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It was Flannery O'Connor who said in order for God to save this one, he had to knock him off his high horse. I don't know if Saul was on a horse. I'm assuming that he probably was. After all, he traveled 135 miles. Regardless, Saul thought himself to be high and mighty. The voice of heaven identified himself as Jesus the Christ. And Jesus said, go into Damascus. You will await further instructions there. As soon as the light shone from heaven, that's how quickly it vanished. And when Saul opened his eyes, he was blind. The physical now mirrored the spiritual. Saul had been spiritually blind. Now, he is physically blind. He opened his eyes and he could not see. Guys, guys, are you there? I I can't see anything. It's just completely dark. I'm blind. It's at this moment that Saul made a willful decision. He had a decision to make. He could either obey the word of Christ, go into Damascus, and await further instruction, or he could disobey the word of Christ, tell his friends, get me back to Jerusalem, to my local physician, because he's got to put something on my eyes to restore my sight, because now I can't see. Saul had a decision to make. Because conversion not only is initiated by God, but it requires a willful decision. You know how willful the man named Saul is because not only is he led by the hand into Damascus, but he goes to the house of Judas on Straight Street. He locks himself in the room and for three days, all he does is fast and pray. For three days, he did not eat. For three days, he did not drink. He was fasting and he was praying. 
for three days, fasting and praying. He was seeking God. God, please answer me. God, please show up. God, please show me what you are doing in my life. He is willfully seeking after the one who had been seeking after him. Conversion is initiated by God, make no mistake about it, but it requires a willful response from you, the individual. It is the man named Saul who is seeking the Lord. Friend, let me ask you, when was the last time that you shut yourself in your house for three days to fast and pray? not asking when was the last time you shut yourself in your house for three days to binge watch your favorite show on Netflix and Hulu. I'm asking when was the last time that you shut yourself in your room for three days to fast and pray and seek God. This is the imagery that we have of this man named Saul. Conversion initiated by God. Conversion requires a willful response. Third, a conversion is a call for complete, continuous surrender. Conversion is a call for complete, continuous surrender. The Lord speaks to the disciple named Ananias. Ananias, you need to go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. There's a man named Saul from Tarsus. He is waiting for you. He's seen a vision of you by name coming, laying your hands upon him so he can see and receive the Holy Spirit. And Ananias said, I think you've got the wrong person. Do you know who Saul is. He has been breathing out murderous threats, harming your people in Jerusalem. He has been coming here to Damascus to do the very same thing to people like me. And the Lord, in so many words, if you give me some sanctified imagination, just simply said, Ananias, get off your keister, obey me, and go to Judas on Straight Street. And there you will find the one named Saul. Friend, I want you to see that not only in the life of Saul, but also in the life of Ananias, conversion is complete, continuous surrender. It is Saul who had to completely and continually surrender himself under the work and will of God. But so did Ananias. At first, Ananias said, I ain't going. There's no way I'm going to go and put myself in harm's way. Because if I go, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I know you. Jesus, you've redeemed me. But if I go, it will be my own death threat. If I go, I'll be thrown into jail. My family will be persecuted. I don't know if I can go. You may need to get somebody else. Ananias, I want you to go. And eventually, Ananias completely and continually surrendered unto Christ. You may have been a Christian for a long time, but just because you surrendered to him years ago does not mean that you no longer need to surrender to him today. God sees your salvation in its totality. The scripture speaks about the fact that I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved in all three tenses, past, present, and future. Because salvation, conversion, is not just a moment in time in a galaxy far, far away, but it's something that happened in the past, but it still has a work upon my life today. And one day, when Jesus comes to rescue me, I will forever be saved in his glorious presence. So I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved one day. In the same way, this conversion is a call for complete, continuous surrender 
unto Christ. The Lord said to Ananias, Saul is my chosen instrument. I will use him to take my name to Jews and Gentiles, kings and paupers. I will teach him how much he must suffer because of my name. He said, uh, Saul is my chosen instrument. The word instrument means vessel, jar, container. So regardless of whether or not you see yourself as Tupperware in God's kitchen, as a pan on God's skillet, as a vase in God's living room, as an instrument in God's orchestra, or as a tool in God's toolbox, regardless, if you have been converted to Christ, you are at his disposal completely and continuously. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price, so you glorify God in all things. You do not belong to you because you're not the main character of your story. Jesus is the main character of your story. And so everything in your life belongs to him. You're at his disposal. Just as last week, I came across this statement that I am most satisfied when I am most surrendered to my Savior. I am most satisfied when I am most surrendered to my Savior. When I say satisfied, I mean I am most content. I am most at peace. I am most at home. I am most in joy. I am most in happiness. I am most satisfied when I am most surrendered unto my Savior. This is what Ananias would tell you. This is what the man named Saul would tell you. What I find interesting is that in the first several chapters, there is mass conversion. 3,000 people are saved on the day of Pentecost. By the time you get to Acts chapter 4, this church mega movement is 5,000 men, not counting women and children. But you get to Acts chapters 8, 9, and 10, and it's three chapters about three stories about three conversions. And in every conversion, it works the same way. A believer tells a non-believer how to be saved, and that non-believer becomes a believer. It's an individual process. It is Philip who goes down Gaza Road and tells the Ethiopian eunuch how to be saved. It is Ananias who goes to the house of Judas on Straight Street and tells the one named Saul how to be saved. It is the apostle Peter who will go to the home of Cornelius the centurion and tell him how to be saved. That same formula works today. That same equation is as true today as it's ever been. In fact, it's the only equation that God gives us in the book of Acts of how a person goes from no faith to faith. It is when a believer tells a non-believer how to be saved saved and that non-believer actually becomes a believer and that's what happens here and in that conversion there is complete continuous surrender this one named Saul that we will call Paul authored 13 books of the New Testament and many times in these letters he will speak about this continuous surrender unto Christ One place is found in Philippians chapter 3. 
It's in Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 7, that the Apostle Paul will write, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He says, I consider everything a loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This whole idea of a complete, continual surrender under Christ is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. It is my greatest joy. It is my greatest assignment. It is my greatest accomplishment. I consider everything else that I used to regard as important as a loss. All the things that Paul says were on his religious resume. The fact that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Pharisee. He was zealous for the law. And when it came to religious righteousness, he was faultless. All the things that he pursued in his culture, all the things that he thought were great, he says they are nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All the things that we pursue in our culture, all the money, all the accolades, all the education, all the achievement, all the promotion, all the advancement, all the success, all the things that we think and we value are so wonderful and great. They pale in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And only the person who is converted, only the person who has a continual surrender to Christ can declare that everything else is rubbish. In fact, the translation that's rendered rubbish is a weak translation. The Greek word is skubala. It's a slang word. It's a slang word that, in a pretty crude way, means dung. He says, everything that I used to value, it's now just a pile of poo. That's all it is. Everything that I used to value, everything that I used to think was important, everything that I used to give my time, my energy, my effort to, my resources to, everything I used to pursue in life, all of the jobs, all of the promotions, all the money, everything, all the success, all of that, all of that is just crap. Can I say crap in a sermon? Because what Paul says, (laughs) what Paul says In Philippians 3, it's far worse than crap. In fact, it's such a slang curse word that that when I say skubala, I'm actually cursing in Greek and you don't even know it, right? I mean, that's what the word means. Everything else is skubala. Everything else is just a pile of poo. It's dung. It's rubbish. He's not trying to be vile. He's not trying to be crude. He's just being comparative. That he says, when I compare everything in this world compared to knowing continually and completely Christ Jesus, my Lord, everything else fades in the background. Friend, can you say that to be true? Can you know today that to know Christ and to be found in him is greater than anything else your boss can say? It's greater than any accolade you can achieve in the workplace. It's greater than any attaboy you can get at home or in the marketplace. It is greater than any compliment. It is greater than anything you're pursuing that to know Christ is better than anything. This is what Paul is saying. That his life will now be lived 
in complete, continuous surrender unto Christ. Conversion is initiated by God. Secondly, conversion requires a willful response. Third, conversion is a call for complete, continuous surrender. Fourth and finally, conversion produces a life transformed by Jesus. Conversion produces a life transformed by Jesus. Ananias went into the house of Judas on Straight Street. He said, Saul, I'm the one that you've seen in your vision. The Lord Jesus told you about me. I have come to tell you more clearly who Jesus is and what he's calling from your life. He laid his hands upon him and something like scales fell off of Saul's eyes. And for the first time, perhaps, truly in his life, Saul could see. He saw in the face of Ananias, the Lord Jesus Christ, because Ananias was the one bearing the good news, telling him how to be saved. And in the face of Ananias, there there was the love, the grace, the forgiveness, and the kindness of Christ. In response, the Apostle Paul got up and he was baptized. He regained his strength by eating food. I didn't read the next verse for you, but if you look at it, it'll say something like this, that Saul stayed where he was in Damascus with the disciples for many days, and at once he went to the synagogue and proclaimed, Jesus is Son of God. You talk about a transformation. This one who persecuted Jesus is now proclaiming Jesus. Look, the evidence of your transformation is the life that you live. Let me say that again. The evidence of your conversion, the evidence of your transformation is seen in the life in which you live. Had the Apostle Paul said, I've accepted Jesus Christ, but he continued to persecute the church, everybody would say, what a phony, what a joke. But no, he said, I've accepted Jesus Christ and the evidence of that was found in his actions, how he lived his life, for he went at once and began to proclaim that Jesus is Son of God. When God saves you, when you are converted for Christ, it always produces a life in you that is transformed by Jesus. It was Tony Evans who said, it's the transformed mind producing transformed feet that we're after. If all we get are biblically literate people, then we've missed it. The goal of conversion is not information. The goal of conversion is not even inspiration. The goal of conversion is transformation for you to look more like Jesus than you ever have before, for you to walk like Jesus and talk like Jesus, for you to think like Jesus and act like Jesus, for you to believe like Jesus, behave like Jesus. We are to be transformed in the very image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the evidence of our conversion is seen in the life in which we live after Christ. We are pursuing the one who is pursued us what I fear is that there just might be a lot of people whose names might even be on church membership rolls but they miss heaven by 18 inches so close and yet so far it's estimated there are 18 inches between the head and the heart 
If you are converted, it's not just that you stuff your mind with biblical facts about Jesus. The person who's converted stuffs the heart with the biblical Jesus. So that if Jesus is inside of us, he will stick out. My friend, I wonder, is there anybody here who needs to take Jesus on board their life today? If you do, it will change your call signs. If you do, it will change your identity. Because when a person is converted, it is always and only initiated by God. It requires a willful response from you. It is a call for a complete, continuous surrender. And, the, and, and what is produced by that conversion is a life transformed by Jesus. Is there anybody here? Anybody? Who needs to take Jesus aboard your life? If you do, today could be the day of your salvation. We're going to pray and sing a song. And while we sing, I want you to come. Take me or one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need Jesus to transform my stinking life. Maybe you're here today and you have taken Jesus aboard your life. But you tried to stuff him and stick him in a certain area, compartment in fact. Saying, Jesus, you have jurisdiction here, but not everywhere. Jesus is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. His presence in your life dramatically alters your identity. Everything is at his disposal. So today, anybody, anybody in need of taking Jesus aboard their life. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. We pray that you will move in a mighty way. If there's somebody who does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today is the day of their salvation. If there's somebody here who is trying to stick you into an overhead compartment, oh Lord Jesus, help us to see how great you are and that everything we're pursuing is, is rubbish compared to the greatness of allowing you to call the shots to be the star of my story. So Lord, have your way in this invitation. Thank you for being so good, oh God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.